It's one of my favorite parts of being in church together is learning the Word of God because the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts even to exposing our hearts and the motives of our hearts and our souls and our spirits. And uh, God's Word is absolutely transformational. So raise your hand if you didn't uh, bring a Bible with you today. Barry's right there with Bibles in hand. He'll get you one. Also, if you missed a bulletin on the way in, he can get you the bulletin. It has the message notes in there. There'll be some blanks to fill in, a few uh, spaces in there for you to jot down some notes because I'd love for you to go back later today, later this week, and review what God is teaching us today. Amen? Okay, we're continuing our series, Come and See. Now, when John wrote his gospel account, you may remember me saying this a few weeks ago, Matthew, Mark, and John, excuse me, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already written their gospel accounts. In fact, by the time that John wrote his gospel account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had likely already been in circulation for around 20 years. And so when he went to write his gospel account, he didn't want to repeat everything that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already shared. So Matthew and Luke in particular, particular had already detailed Jesus's birth there in Bethlehem. They had already talked about Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. They had already talked about Jesus being tempted for 40 days in the wilderness and when the devil came to him, when he was hungry, when he was thirsty and, and tempted Jesus. So Matthew and Luke had already covered that. So what does John do? We've seen in recent weeks that beginning in verse 19 of John chapter 1, he begins to detail the first week of Jesus's public ministry. So if you're there in your Bibles, you can look at verse 19 of chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. John the Baptist is the focus on day one of Jesus's public ministry. And those religious leaders come from Jerusalem. They ask John the Baptist, who are you and why are you baptizing Jews here in the Jordan River? And so that's day one of Jesus's ministry. Day two begins in verse 29 of John chapter one. And remember what happened on that day. Jesus comes out of the crowd. John the Baptist sees him. And John is so excited. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there on day two, as he says that, people begin to see, oh, Jesus must be the one that John's been talking about. Day three begins in verse 35. On day three, John once again says, the Lamb of God, there he is. And two of John the Baptist's disciples, Andrew and John, leave their rabbi, John the Baptist, and begin following their brand new rabbi, Jesus Christ. Also on that day, Simon, whose name is changed to Simon Peter, he begins following Jesus. We skip down to verse 43. On verse, uh, in verse 43, we see day four of Jesus' first week of his public ministry. On day four, Philip and Nathaniel begin following Jesus. And that takes us to the end of chapter one. So today we begin our look at chapter two. We're going to look at the first 11 verses today. And notice those first few verses in chapter, uh, first few words, I should say, in verse one of chapter two. Notice what it says there. It says, on the third day. So we believe this is three days counted from day four. So if that's the case, this is day seven of Jesus's first week of public ministry, which is kind of cool. Remember how he began John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So he was mirroring Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So if this is what John is doing as he writes chapters one and two, this is pretty cool to think about. On day seven of creation week, God the father rested from all of his work, right? 
on day seven of Jesus's first ministry week, he in a sense is going to rest from his work by going to a wedding. But we're going to discover that partway into that wedding, there's no rest for the weary, right? We're going to find that partway into that wedding, his mom, Mary, comes up to him and says, we need your help. And so even on his day of rest, Jesus gets involved. Isn't that just like God? In our time of need, no matter when it is, no matter what day, no matter what time of day or night, Jesus Christ gets involved when we call on him. Amen? And so let's pick up here in verse 1 of John chapter 2 as we begin this second great chapter of the book of John. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearly Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, draw some out and take to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper stuff after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best for now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Amen. Well, people say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Most of the time, that's not true when it comes to the Word of God. Wouldn't you agree with me that I would rather have a thousand words from the Gospel of John than all the paintings of Jesus that Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci ever painted, right? You give me all those paintings and toss them aside. I'll take a thousand words from the Gospel of John any day of the week. So a picture is not necessarily worth a thousand words, especially when it comes to the Word of God. However, sometimes there's a picture or a depiction in a program or a movie about Jesus that does a pretty good job of depicting what it must have been like. I think The Chosen in season one does a pretty good job depicting what this first miracle of Jesus looked like. And so I want you to have your message notes handy. We're going to show you a clip from season one of The Chosen, Jesus turning water into wine. And I want you to have your notes and your pen handy. I want you to jot down where they get it right and where the writers of the show have maybe strayed a little bit from what we just read here in John chapter 2. Actually, that would be a terrible thing to behold. My son. Ah, Andrew, you see, even my own mother will join us in the Song of Miriam. They've run out of wine. But it's only the first day? Yes, and it's all gone. Not a drop left. Why are you telling me this? We can't let the celebration end like this. And the actual family humiliated. Boys, uh, go join the others. I'll be right there. Mm.
از نوکت کم Fill these jars with water. I'm not sure you heard her clearly, but we've run out of wine, not water. These are similar in size to your own foray. The prudent monks, yes. We could have filled all the way to the brim. You're a very responsible person, aren't you? We are in a crisis, and I was led to understand you have a solution. Fill these jars with water all the way to the brim. Why? You heard him. Start throwing water. Quickly. Tell anyone you find to stop what they're doing and help. They're full. Everyone, please step outside. Just for a moment, Thomas. Once you make that first cut into the stone, it can't be undone. It sets in motion a series of choices. What used to be a shapeless block of limestone or granite begins its long journey of transformation. And it will never be the same. Vintage, sir. Yes, 
Stop the music. Stop the music. Everyone, listen. I have something I would like to say. I would like to address the bridegroom and the bride families. At every wedding I've ever overseen, they serve the best wine first. And then, when the people have drunk freely, much later in the feast, they serve the poorer wine, the cheap stuff. <laughs> because by then, who is going to notice? <laughs> Am I right? But you, you have chosen now to serve the best wine I have ever tasted. Let us thank them for this unnecessary but honorable gesture. So they do a pretty good job on that, huh? Powerful series if you haven't seen that yet. And uh, it's never a substitute for the Word of God, but sometimes it can help us picture what's going on. And so weddings in Jesus' day in first century Israel were quite a bit different than our weddings today here in the United States. In Jesus' day, marriages were usually arranged by the parents. A contract was prepared. Vows were taken in the synagogue. And after taking their vows in the synagogue, the bride and groom would leave the synagogue. And guess where they went? The honeymoon suite, you might think? No. The groom went back to his parents' house. The bride went back to her parents' house. And this is how it lasted for two months to a year. That was considered the betrothal period. And so after sharing your vows, you give your bride, guys, a hug goodbye and go your separate ways for two months to a year. And that's something. And at the end of that betrothal period, at the end of the betrothal period, that is when the wedding vows would be consummated. And so at the end of that betrothal period, uh, with a lot of pomp and circumstance, the groom would get himself donned in some garb that almost looked like he was a king, and he would have a crown placed on his head, and he would parade through the streets with all of his friends and his family in tow, blowing trumpets, singing songs, celebrating and yelling. They would take down through the streets of the town, and he would go to his bride's home. And then once he got to the bride's home, there would be some speeches and some celebration and some more music. And then together, they would make a U-turn and head back down the streets to his house, his parents' house, where for up to seven days, they would have a huge and grand wedding feast. And so this was the great Jewish wedding. And normally, that great feast, as he brought his bride home, began on a Wednesday night. In first century Israel, that was likely a Wednesday night when this took place. So the scene here uh, in the Chosen series, I think, accurately portrays that this would have taken place, at least the beginning of the feast, at nighttime. And so this is what was going uh, on in this culture. And in a culture where there was much poverty and, and most people worked hard six days a week, the wedding feast was really the highlight of the year. That being the case, during the seven-day wedding feast, the groom's family was expected to provide all of the food and beverage necessary to sustain all the family and friends during the entire week of that feast. It was their duty. That was their responsibility. You see, hospitality was considered a sacred duty in first century Israel. Still the case in many countries in the Middle East today. So if, any, if at any point you ran out of food 
or ran out of wine, it was humiliating and embarrassing for the entire family, especially the groom's family. So much so that in some cases, the civil authorities would actually fine you and fine your family if you had failed to adequately provide food and drink for those that you were hosting at your home. That's how important hospitality was. That's how humiliating it was to your guests if you failed to provide for them. So, when Jesus' mother Mary comes to him in verse 3 and tells him, they have no more wine, believe me when I say this was a crisis, and Mary was a bit frantic. Mary seems to have known the bride and groom and to have been placed in some position of authority over that wedding banquet, so she shuddered at the thought of the groom's family being publicly humiliated by this fiasco. This wouldn't be as simple as a a bunch of wedding guests getting upset uh, these days because they have the wedding reception and the bartender runs out of booze. Now, some of you may have been to a a reception like that. Well, they didn't plan accordingly, and you get a few people that are half drunk that get a little upset. It, It wouldn't have been like that. Believe me, it was much, much worse in those days. For starters, wine back then was not like wine today. Wine was the common beverage. And so if you look at some Bible commentaries, it's very common that commentators point out that wine in Jesus' day was three parts water to two parts wine. And so it was very watered down. Some even say that oftentimes it was three parts water to one part wine. And so you're talking about some very diluted grape juice, some very diluted wine that they were drinking. That was their standard beverage. And so to run out of wine at a wedding feast would be kind of like you and me. Let's say we got a few of our families together and we dished out a few thousand dollars to go to Disneyland for the day. Because that's what it's going to cost you if a few families go together to Disneyland, right? Imagine walking through the gate and 15 minutes after you've dished out a few thousand dollars to get through the front gate... Gate 15 minutes in, uh, the guy comes across the loudspeaker and says, Attention, all guests of the Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom. I just want to let you know uh, that we're completely out of beverages. There's no more sodas. There's no more juice. There's no more milk. There's no more water. Nothing. Have a wonderful day at the happiest place on earth. You would be making a U-turn and going to some guy of authority and saying, I want my money back, right? It's a hot day. You're going to be parched. You're going to be thirsty an hour or two into it. Imagine how bad that would be. It was even worse in those days to run out of wine at a wedding. There's no doubt in my mind that Mary was frantic here. She comes to Jesus with the bad news about the wine. But even still, notice Jesus' response in verse 4. He says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Now, in English, it seems like he's being a little rude to mommy dearest. He calls her dear woman, but that's because this Greek word he uses here can't be precisely translated into English. Uh, Maybe the best translation in English might be ma'am. So it is a term of respect. Uh, Dear ma'am, dear woman, uh, why are you involving me? It's not my time yet. So Jesus wasn't talking down to her. He was just talking straight and, and plain with her. He tells his mom plainly that his time has not yet come. In other words, Jesus was not on an earthly timetable. He was on a heavenly timetable. Five times in the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus' time had not yet come. To Jesus, it was never just about doing the Father's will. Jesus was determined to do the Father's will in the Father's perfect timing. Amen? In life, as we follow Christ, it's not simply about doing God's will. It's about doing God's will 
in the right timing, right? So let's say you discover, some of you may be teenagers in the room, let's say you discover the wife that God has called you to marry. So you're going to marry her at the age of 15 if you discover your future wife. Guys, are you going to do that? No, because the timing's off, right? Timing is everything. Don't just obey God's will, obey his timing as well. And Jesus says, dear woman, my my, my timing is not right here. Well, there must have been a subtle glimmer in Jesus's eye. I like how they portray it in that uh, clip we just saw. There's some nonverbal communication going on, I think. They make eye contact, and Jesus, I imagine, had a glimmer in his eye because she knew somehow that he had changed his mind a bit here. He goes from saying, it's not my time yet, to her saying to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And do it quickly before he changes his mind again. I don't know how that exactly went down, but I think there's some nonverbal communication between Jesus and his earthly mother here. She says, do whatever he tells you. And that's what the servants do. Just as Jesus instructs, they fill to the brim the six stone jars used for ceremonial washing. Each jar, as we see in the NIV translation, held between 20 and 30 gallons of water. So that's a total of between 120 gallons and 180 gallons of water transformed into wine and then he instructs this servant to scoop out some probably with a ladle of some sort scoop some out and take it to the master of the banquet in our time that would be like the wedding coordinator take it to the wedding coordinator and so either on in route from the barrel to the wedding coordinator that water in the ladle is transformed into wine Or, as it's depicted in this clip, Jesus did it before he ever scooped it out. But one way or another, in a split second, Jesus transformed up to 180 gallons of water into some of the best wine that people had ever tasted. He transforms it. It was some of the best wine they'd ever tasted. And John ends the account in verse 11 by saying, This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory And his disciples put their faith in him. Now, every year at the Academy Awards, all sorts of awards are handed out to the best actors and actresses and and production crews in Hollywood. And as you know, a trophy is given to the winners in each category. That trophy is called an, an Oscar, right? It's a gold trophy of a guy that years ago they thought looked like Uncle Oscar. So it just kind of stuck as a name. And so these Oscars are given to the best of the best in Hollywood each year. And for many years, uh, the uh, ones that organized, the Academy that organized the whole award show, told those who were presenting the awards, you are to say it this way when you're about to read off the name of the winner. I want you to say, and the Academy or the, and the Oscar goes to, and then you fill in the blank, right? And they did this for a number of years, beginning in the early 90s. They've switched it back in the last few years to the winner is. But for years, they said, and the Oscar goes too. I want you to keep that in mind because I think we need to do a similar thing when we're reading about these miracles in the Gospel of John. If you look at these seven miracles that John records for us in his Gospel account, he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs or miraculous signs. And we ask the question, why does he do that? He does it because he doesn't want us to focus our attention on the miracle itself. He wants us to realize that the miracle is pointing to something deeper. It's pointing to something greater. It's pointing to something more important than the miracle itself. Amen? 
And so as we look at this first miracle of Jesus here in John chapter 2, it's important to realize that God doesn't want us to spend the rest of our lives staring at this miracle itself. Jesus transformed water into wine. How many of you agree that is pretty cool? In a split second, doing what is absolutely impossible. Remember, I'm no connoisseur of fine wine, but I know enough to know that the best wine is oftentimes aged, right? Aged wine. It takes time to make good wine. And so imagine what Jesus does here. He takes water, plain, boring, unfiltered water, and in a split second, ages it into perfect wine. He transforms it from water to a great product and then instantly ages it to the best wine that guy had ever tasted. That's pretty remarkable. Only the creator of the universe could do such a thing. And our tendency is to hold that in our hand and just ooh and ah about the miracle itself. And John says, no, don't spend all your time just focused on the miracle itself. It is a sign. It's pointing to something deeper. It's pointing to something greater. It's pointing to something more important than itself. And so I want you, in the spirit of how they used to word the Academy Award presentation, think of it this way. When you come across a miracle in the Gospel of John, say to yourself, and the miraculous sign points to, and fill in the blank, right? And the miraculous sign points to, and fill in the blank with what the Holy Spirit reveals is the message the deep spiritual truth that this miraculous sign is pointing to. John doesn't want us to spend all our time ooing and aahing. He wants us to focus on the deeper spiritual truth. So I want to share with you three deeper spiritual truths that Jesus' sign here in John 2 is pointing to. First of all, I would say that this transformation of water into wine is pointing to Christ as the source of lasting joy. Jesus Christ, say this last part with me, is the source of lasting joy. One more time, Jesus Christ is the source of lasting joy. Now, how can we pull that from this miracle? Well, in the Old Testament, wine is a symbol of joy. You can see this especially in Judges chapter 9, verse 13, Psalm chapter 104, verse 15. So if Jesus had preached a sermon right after performing this miracle here in John chapter 2, I think his sermon might have gone something like this. The world's joy looks and tastes great in the beginning. And there seems to be plenty of it. But sooner or later, it runs out and leaves you empty. But the joy that I give you is new every morning and completely satisfying. My joy will never leave you. It'll never leave you empty. Taste and see that my joy is good. How many of you discovered that the joy of the world ends quickly? If you doubt that, read the first few chapters of Solomon's great book, Ecclesiastes. That guy was loaded. He had all the money anyone would ever want. Man, he could build the gold palaces. He had a thousand women that he could have sex with. He had everything that, as he said, the heart of a man might desire. The best food, the best women, all of that he had. And he said, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Jesus' joy brings meaning and true joy at a level that the world's joy never can. And so that is so true. This miraculous sign points to Christ as the source of lasting joy. Number two, 
The miraculous sign points to the inferior nature of the Jewish law and the superior nature of Christ's grace. It's no accident that Jesus chooses to perform the miracle using six stone ceremonial washing jars. That's one thing I wasn't particularly fond of in this clip we just watched. Jesus walks into the room. It's almost like he's looking around. What can I use to hold some wine I'm going to make? Oh, there's some stone jars. It, It certainly wasn't that accidental. You see, in Bible times, especially in the Jewish culture, numbers were very significant. And so some theologians focus on studying numerology, what certain numbers in the Bible stand for. And so, for example, the number seven is often called the number of God. The number seven in Jewish circles stands for completion. It stands for having something to its perfection. And so that's why the number seven represents God at times in Scripture. You find one number shy of that, the number six, representing falling short of perfection, being incomplete, and it becomes in Scripture the number used of man. That's why the number in Revelation 666 is regarded as such an evil number. It's falling short three times over. It's being incomplete and even sinful three times over. And so notice this number of jars here, six large jars intended for ceremonial hand washing. And Jesus transforms them into vessels designed for a higher purpose, such as hydrating a large group of thirsty wedding guests. So what is Jesus saying? I think Warren Wearsby says it really well. He writes, the six stone water jars stand for all the imperfections of the Jewish law. You with me so far? Goes on to say, Jesus came to do away with the imperfections of the law and to put in their place the new wine of the gospel of his grace. Jesus turned the imperfection of the law into the perfection of grace. Isn't that good? Six jars. Six ceremonial hand-washing jars. The number of imperfection, jars being filled with imperfect water, that always imperfectly cleansed your hands because water can never cleanse your hands if you have sin on your hands. If you've committed murder, you cannot go through a ceremonial hand washing and tell the judge, I'm okay now, I washed my hands ceremonially. If you have blood on your hands, you're going to pay for that blood, aren't you? Ceremonial hand washing could never truly cleanse someone of sin. I think this is so good what Wearsby says here. What Jesus offers is so much better, so much more satisfying than what the Old Testament offers. I'm so glad that God made me a New Testament pastor and not an Old Testament priest. Can you imagine what a drag it would be to have to slit animals' throats day in and day out to try to cover sin? And it never worked, did it? What a terrible job that would be. And I have to wear those weird clothes with scratchy material. And all these tassels hanging off of me, and i got to do this ceremonial hand-washing and jump through all these religious hoops and go through all these traditions and and obey to a T-613 laws of Moses. That'd be terrible. I'm so glad God didn't make me an Old Testament priest. He made me a New Testament pastor. It's so much better. So much better. If I'm wearing funny-looking clothes, that's my own darn fault, not because I had to wear them. So... What a blessing it is that Jesus takes the imperfect law and symbolically here in this in this miracle replaces it with the perfect law of grace. Jesus's grace is never burdensome. It can save. And Jesus gives it to us in abundance. Wearsby goes on to write, 
no wedding party on earth could drink 180 gallons of wine, right? Think about that. 120 to 180 gallons of wine he makes here. Why do they need so much wine? No one can drink that much. Why do you do it? Because, once again, it's symbolic. No need on earth can exhaust the grace of Christ. There is a glorious superabundance in it. John is telling us that in Jesus, the imperfections have become perfection, and the grace has become illimitable, sufficient, and more than sufficient for every need. How many of you have discovered that Jesus doesn't just give you enough grace to squeak by? He gives you an abundance of grace. Abundance of grace, doesn't he? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The third way that I think this miraculous sign points to something deeper and greater and more significant is that it points to Jesus' power to transform us from the inside out. You may remember in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, the Apostle Paul says, we hold this treasure that God has given us, the spiritual treasure, in jars of clay. And so there in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul describes our bodies as Christians as jars of clay. And throughout Scripture, we're told that God does his greatest work inside our jars of clay. The Lord doesn't waste his time styling our hair or trimming our unibrows or a lady's giving you a mani-pedi. He doesn't waste his time doing that, does he? He focuses his time and his energy on transforming us on the inside. God spends his time softening our hard hearts and opening our stubborn minds and renewing a steadfast spirit within us. If Jesus had preached a sermon after transforming the water into wine, I suspect that he also would have said something like this. Your heart inside your jar of clay is like the water in this jar. I transform the water in this jar into something much, much better. And in the same way, I can transform your heart into something much, much better. If you'll let me, I will reach inside your jar of clay and I will soften your hard heart. I will open your closed mind. I'll give you a brand new spirit. I make good mind, good, good wine, but I guarantee you, I make even better hearts. Can you imagine Jesus saying something like that? Look at this water transformed into wine. I can do something so much better inside of you. You see how this miraculous sign preaches? Don't go through the book of John and simply look at the miracles in ooh and awe. Look past the miracle to what it's pointing toward. You look at the best billboard on any freeway, best billboard you've ever seen. And if you only remember the billboard... And it doesn't lead you to the product or the company or the business that that billboard is advertising. Then those guys have wasted thousands of dollars on that billboard. It's always been designed to point to something more important, something greater than itself. Jesus Christ gave us this wonderful sign here in John chapter 2 to point to something greater, something deeper, something more transformational. It points to Jesus Christ. Last week, I heard a story about years ago, a drunken coal miner. The guy was always working with one hand and had a bottle of something in the other. But one day he gave his life to Jesus Christ and he decided he was going to quit drinking cold turkey. And so he gives his life to Christ. He quits drinking and he takes his drinking time and turns it into time to tell people about Jesus. And he's telling everyone who will listen about Jesus. Well, one of his old drinking buddies thought he could trick him into picking up the bottle again and getting drunk again. And so his old drinking buddy says, yeah, I heard that story about Jesus. Uh, don't you believe 
what the Bible says that Jesus did with that water? Uh, don't you believe that he, he transformed that water into wine? Huh? Don't you believe that? And the transformed, new and improved coal miner responded without skipping a beat. He says, you better believe I believe that miracle. In fact, Jesus Christ has worked a similar miracle in my own family. He has taken my wine and he's transformed it into furniture, food on the table, and decent clothes for my kids. Isn't that just like Jesus? He may not take your water and turn it into wine, but he does similar miracles over and over and over again in the lives of his followers. I want to quickly share with you three life lessons. I always want you to see that the word of God is extremely practical. I don't want you to just see what the the signs are pointing to with this miracle. I want you to see how you can apply this to your life today. Life lesson number one, Jesus enjoyed a good party as much as the next guy. Yeah, I got a couple amens off of that. But he was always ready on a moment's notice to do God's work and reveal his glory at the party. Right? He didn't just go to the party. He transformed the party. Throughout the Middle Ages, paintings of Jesus made him appear really depressed. Have you seen those old paintings of Jesus? It's like, did he just suck on a lemon or something? Why does Jesus look so sad all the time? And that's how those painters, and especially in the Middle Ages, tended to paint Jesus. But I have no doubt Jesus displayed a wide variety of emotions, a wide variety of moods. Yes, sadness and grief at times, but he could also go to a party and have a good time. He displayed happiness. He displayed joy. He displayed laughter. Uh, The great 19th century preacher, Charles H. Spurgeon, uh, he's known in Christian circles as the Prince of Preachers. You can go back and read his sermon manuscripts today. Uh, Millions of Christians have been blessed by his sermons. But from what I understand, when he preached them out loud, he was very careful to not use inflections because he didn't want to drum up emotions artificially in his listening audience. If they were touched in an emotional way, he wanted it to be the word itself touching them, not him getting all excited in the middle of the sermon. So he was a kind of a somber guy, but listen to what he wrote. He said, an individual who has no friendliness about him had better be an undertaker and bury the dead, for he will never succeed in influencing the living. I commend cheerfulness to all who would win souls, a genial, happy spirit. There are more flies caught with honey than with vinegar. And there will be more souls led to heaven by a man who wears heaven in his face than by one who bears hell in his looks. Well said, isn't it? Well said. Life lesson number two. Instinctively, Mary turned to Jesus for help whenever something went wrong. And so should we don't miss what Mary did here. She had a problem and she didn't go to the, the nearest winemaker in town there and say, help me out. You got some spare wine on hand. I, I need some more wine. She didn't go to the local winemaker. She didn't pick up the phone and call 1-800-FAST-WINE. She didn't do any of those things. What does she do? She goes to Jesus and it, John says this was his first miraculous sign meaning his mother Mary had never even seen him perform a miracle before. But notice she goes to Jesus anyway. Why did she do that? Because she had been with him for 30 years. And she knew that growing up and into his adult years, when he was an adult but still living at home there in Nazareth before he began his public ministry, Jesus proved himself to be Mr. Fix-It. If there was a problem, without even having to perform a miracle, Jesus would fix it, right? 
And so she goes to Mr. Fix-It that she had grown to, to know and love over the past 30 years. She goes to Mr. Fix-It and says, we've got a problem. We're out of wine. It's going to be humiliating for the family. It's going to be insulting. They might even get a fine. What are we going to do, Jesus? Can you do something? Can you do something? She goes to Jesus. When there was a problem, she took it to him. You and I would do well to have this same kind of simple faith that Mary had. Jesus, I've got a problem. I got a big problem and I have no idea how you're going to fix it. But here it is. I need your help, Jesus. Do your thing and I'll do whatever you tell me to do to carry out your solution. You are strong. You are wise. You are good. And I trust you completely. Do you have that habit of taking your problems to Jesus? Don't say, you know, this one's small. I'll take care of it myself. Take your problems to Jesus. He's Mr. Fix-It. And you and I, as followers of Christ, have had Mr. Fix-It just a single prayer away. And for some odd reason, we haven't gone to him with our problems day in and day out. Take your problems to Jesus. Finally, life lesson number three. Always view Jesus' miracles as signs pointing to something bigger and more important. And that includes the miracle of you. Amen? As I was preparing for today's message, I came across an insight from William Barclay. I I love going back to these commentaries from ages past. And he was uh, back over 100 years ago, I think it was. Let's see. William Barclay, I got that wrong. He was late 20th century, uh, passed away a few decades ago. But he said this. It is not only Jesus who came into the world to fulfill the purpose of God. It has been said that each one of us is a dream and an idea of God. We too must think not of our own wishes and our own desires, but of the purpose for which God sent us into his world. Think about this. Before you were ever born, you existed in the mind of God. You were a thought in the mind of God, or you could say it as Barclay does, you were a dream in the mind of God. Think about that. Before I was ever a glimmer in my mama's eye, God was dreaming about me. He was thinking about me. And you, when you were born, became a dream made real. A dream that entered the real world. Jesus Christ gave you flesh and bone and blood. And his dream came into being when you were born. You are one of God's miracles. And as one of his miracles, you are also a sign. As one of God's miracles, he has created you to be a sign pointing to someone or more accurately or something or more accurately someone greater and deeper and more important than you. So I've got to ask you, if he has created you to be a sign pointing to him, why do we spend so much of our time drawing attention to ourselves. We have that tendency as selfish human beings, don't we? We spend time drawing attention to ourselves. And just like this miracle in John 2, Jesus says, no, don't spend your time focusing on the miracle itself. Don't focus on the sign itself. And he says to us Christians, don't focus your time and energy drawing attention to yourself. Focus your time and energy pointing to Jesus Christ because he is deeper He is more important. He is greater than you are any day of the week. Have you been doing what God has called you to do? 
Ask yourself, how am I doing carrying out the purpose for which I was created? You are a miraculous sign, a walking, talking sign. So let me ask you, who are you pointing to? I want to close by saying this. If a jar of water can be transformed into something that clearly points to Jesus Christ, then certainly you as a dream of God, made flesh, and born again because of the grace of Jesus Christ, can point to him as well. If a jar full of wine can do it, then you and I can certainly do it for the glory of God. Heavenly Father, help us to point to you every day of our lives. Help us to point to you. You are a God of grace. You are a God of mercy. Your grace is so much greater than our disgrace. Thank you for this miracle that you shared with us in John chapter 2. And Lord, forgive us for at times when we've just focused on the miracle. Oh, that was pretty neat and moved on. Not really thinking about the power of this miracle. Not thinking about the sermon that is preached through this miracle. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for transforming us from the inside out. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us the new law of grace that is so far superior to the old law in the Old Testament. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us real lasting joy, a joy that nothing in this world can match. We love you, Lord. I pray if there's anyone here today who has never made a decision for Jesus Christ, that today, Lord, as we're praying this prayer, as our heads are bowed, as our eyes are closed, that they would just come to you, Lord Jesus, and say, please forgive me. Please wash me clean. If there's anyone here today who needs to make a decision to accept Jesus Christ, if you've never made that decision, but you realize you need to do it today, and I ask you just to raise your hand right now. Say, Lord Jesus, you can see my hand. I need you. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. If you're raising your hand, I want to lead you in a prayer. Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Please wash me clean. Cleanse me of my sin. Give me a brand new start. My sin has caused me to have blood on my own hands. But I claim the blood of Jesus. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. And I will put you in the driver's seat of my life and follow you all my days until you call me home to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.